Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about some exciting technology issues. We're going to be speaking with a professor. He happens to be a law professor at New York Law School, who used to be a programmer for Microsoft. So we've got somebody who knows what he's talking about, that's for sure. And he's joining us all the way from the East Coast. Let me tell you a little bit about James Grimmelman, who is an associate professor at New York Law School and a member of its Institute for Information Law and Policy. He received his JD from Yale Law School, where he was editor-in-chief of their law review and their law journal. He, prior to law school, he received an AB in computer science from Harvard College. So you've got a lawyer who really knows technology. That's impressive. And he worked as a programmer, as I said before, for Microsoft. He has served as a resident fellow of the Information Society Project at, at Yale, as a legal intern for Creative Commons and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and we've interviewed people from EFF before. He also was a law clerk to the Honorable Marianne Trump Barry of the United States Court of Appeal for the Third Circuit. And I had a great deal of fun reading his blog called The Laboratorium, and you can see a lot more about that. We'll talk about that. He studies how the law Governing the creation and use of computer software affects individual freedom and the distribution of wealth and power in society. So that's another aspect that we haven't really dealt with on this show that much. As a lawyer and a technologist, he aims to help these two groups, meaning the computer people and the uh, privacy people uh, and the lawyers, speak intelligibly to each other. He writes about intellectual property, virtual worlds, search engines, online privacy, and other topics in computer and international, I mean, internet law. Some of his recent publications include The Ethical Visions of Copyright Law. That was a Fordham Law Review article. How to Fix the Google Book Search Settlement, which I'm going to ask him about as as an author. I worry about that. And The Structure of Search Engine Law. And that also was Iowa Law Review. 
He's been blogging since 2000 at the Laboratorium, which I told you I saw his blogs. And you can find that at laboratorium.net. And his website is james.grimmelman, that's G-R-I-M-M-E-L-M-A-N-N dot net. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from the East Coast, James. Thank you for having me on. Well, I got to tell you, I'm, I, I, ha- I must ask you, what was it like to be a programmer for Microsoft? So, it, was, it, was, it was actually a really nice place. Uh, they treated the programmers with a lot of respect. It was a company that was built on software, and it was a really exciting time to be working in computers. Like At the end of it, I thought it was a great place to work. It's just I knew that I didn't want to actually be a programmer. So how did you get to be a programmer after you had your computer science degree from, from Yale? Did you go right to Microsoft? I went right out of college thinking, oh, I'm going to be a programmer and work in building technology. And what I concluded over the few years I was there is that I really liked technology and technologists, but I was mostly interested in the policy issues. As I wanted to make the world safe for people like the ones I worked with yeah. rather than be one myself. Yeah. Now, tell us about the Institute for Law and Policy at New York Law School. So this was a center at the law school started by my colleague Beth Novak five or ten years ago that focuses on bringing law students into contact with both intellectual property law and also high technology. And it has a real do-tank philosophy. You know, you know about think tanks, but this is more of a do-tank. <laughs> the idea is to train students to know enough law and enough technology to go out and use the two together to find ways of making the world better. So what is the background of these law students? Do they have technology background, or do they actually learn it while they're in law school? They tend to, tend to learn it while they're in law school. Wow. They come from all sorts of you know, different backgrounds. So you have former actors who are interested in the media. You have people who have a technology or science background who are interested in patents. You have people with you know, music or advertising. And the goal is to really find ways to help these teams with very you know, diverse preparations and talents to fuse together into doing really neat projects. Well, you know, here we're sitting on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, and I know my students, I also teach there, and I know everybody who's my student really is on Facebook. They share a lot of information on the Internet. You know, we're all on the Internet all the time. You and I corresponded by email, and I looked at your blog. And so really, you know, we're all really putting, uh, reviewing a lot of information on the Internet but a lot of people put in an unbelievable amount of information about themselves online. So what does that say about their concerns about privacy as we're moving forward? I mean, I think this sort of the basic default is that a lot of our regular social life, the things that we would be doing you know, just in person or over the phone in a previous era, are now mediated by computers. And one of the things that means is there's now this record of everything that's happened because the computers tend to store what I sent to you or what I posted. And so it looks as though a lot of things that would formerly have been very private and very personal and meant only for a few years are now in some electronic form that could be seen by a lot more people. And that at first really looks like it's a gigantic change in what privacy means because suddenly things that used to be private are at least potentially public. And so 
how about the concern for privacy? I mean, do people, do they really get it? I mean, I think as one who has been a victim of identity theft, you know, back in 1996, I have a heightened sense of privacy. And that's one of the reasons that I ended up, you know, putting together this this radio show was my concern about privacy and my belief that a lot of people just are really not aware of the ramifications of sharing all this information. What are your thoughts? You're with a lot of young people at the law school, and I would imagine that um, because you're so interested in this issue, you would have some ideas about the concerns about privacy. What are they? I mean, I think the biggest issue is really foresight and predicting what will happen with information you put online. It's certainly the case that these younger generations care an enormous amount about privacy. So, you know, take you know, a fairly silly example. You know, students who go out to cake parties and then discover that their athletic coaches have able to see the photos, and they get suspended from the team for drinking. So they feel that there's something, the privacy violation has happened, that something inappropriate happened when the coaches started looking on Facebook. And so they have this very finely tuned sense of social context. They think, well, the party is one place, and we wouldn't have invited the coach to the party. So it's, sort of, it's inappropriate for them to be coming and looking at the information in that setting. And so they, they're caring about privacy, but at the same time, they're not fully able to predict who will see the things that they post. Right, and you so know, the and big policy challenge is really how do you help people figure out what audiences will see things that they're doing. Right, and it you know, will there ever be a way to block this stuff? You know, I deal with people who call me who are victims of identity theft, whether it be cyber identity theft, to, you know, where someone is actually trying to um, embarrass someone by committing identity theft online, or to get revenge, or some reason to do that. Or, you know, and what what's up there gets archived and gets repeated, and, and it's so beyond our control. So given that you say young people are worried about, you know, who sees that they were at a keg party, or, you know, when our students graduate from law school or they graduate from college and um, they want to get a job, you know, who who at the new law firm or who at the, the, the new corporation uh, that they're trying to look for a job, who's going to be seeing this, you know? What are, what are they going to look at? So why is it that people feel so comfortable about sharing private information on, on social networking sites like Facebook? I think part of this goes back to what I was saying when we started out, which is that social interactions that used to be offline are moving online. And so Facebook, you can hear that example, really feels like a reunion or a hallway in your dorm or it can be like the water cooler at work and the part of your brain that's used to you know, socializing in all these places is the part that gets turned on. You see your friends' faces, you see their conversations, you get drawn in, you think about, oh yeah, I'm just hanging out with my work buddies here. And the part that's thinking about actually who all can see this, it has a very hard time visualizing the much wider audience and an even harder time realizing who they could invite to see it. So companies that are interviewing people may sometimes get friends of them to tell them what they can see on Facebook, pass things along. Hired somebody from the class of 2007 to work at your firm. You might have that person report on, 
people from the class of 2009 who are still in college, taking advantage of the fact that they're still part of the college network. Right. So what can we do to really help people manage their privacy better on these sites and to, you know, how do we really educate people so that they do understand the ramifications of what might happen in the future? It's a really subtle and tricky question about really designing good software. You can tell people to be careful, to always remember whatever you say could wind up on the virtual equivalent of the front page of the New York Times. But really the most important thing is for sites like blogs and Facebook and other online services to really help people understand the consequences of what they're posting. And Facebook has added some nice things that help with this to some extent, helps you see the profile as what people in your social circle might see. So you can tell that if I were not one of my close friends, oh, this information is visible to them, I should go take that down. It's really about helping people visualize the consequences of their actions. So what are some of the Facebook uh, protections, privacy protections, that you think people should implement? Well, one thing they've already done, which I really appreciate, is that if you send a private message on Facebook, there's a reply button, but there's no forward. So it really is actually a kind of confidential conversation. You can't just accidentally hit the wrong button and wind up forwarding the message or replying all to this gigantic circle of people. Right, right. And in terms of the settings themselves, just Facebook has a reasonably straightforward and clean interface. One thing people should really be doing is setting up groups to say, these are my work friends. These are my old classmates from high school. These are professional contacts. And you might want to make some of your information visible to one group and not to another to say that things on my wall, for example, won't be visible to my professional contacts. They'll just get my basic contact information. But things that I might consider more private go only to a smaller group of people that I trust more. What about the fact that law enforcement really could get access to this? What are, what are your suggestions about that, considering that you might have the small group that's your old friends from high school and um, you might talk about how you tried marijuana or did whatever you did in those days? And um, what about that? Are people even aware that there could be subpoenas and things, you know, this something like that? It's a gigantic issue everywhere today because there's so much information about us that's in the hands of all of these online third parties. Now, sometimes I think we're really happy that law enforcement can find out about things on Facebook. There was one case recently about a burglar who checked Facebook from his victim's home, and that's actually a really great way to be caught and identified. And so it's good that Facebook had that information. And when the police came with proper authorization, we were able to say, yes, actually, this is the account that was checked from this guy's home. Right. But people should be aware that these things are stored. And companies vary a lot in terms of how much they're willing to protect users' privacy. Facebook has been saying relatively recently that they are looking for that fight to stand up for users against unwarranted subpoenas. Right, right. So Other well, companies brag about how much they cooperate with law enforcement. Yeah, like AT&T and, and others, yeah. So when we look at computers, since that's really one of your fortes, to really understand how computers work in programming, you know, how do they help or hurt privacy? 
Well, on the one hand, computers are enabling the formation of really big databases with tons of information on people. This has come really out of the credit card world and the credit uh, scoring world, where these companies have gigantic files of information on people. And without computers, there's no way to have that kind of giant monitoring project. And so computers have certainly made it very easy for places never to forget anything and then to combine these large databases. So that's really shifted the balance against privacy in some very important ways. At the same time, there's at least some things that you can do online in a more discreet way than you would have been able to do previously. People can certainly get information without their neighbors knowing about it in a way that would have been difficult to do, for example, in a small town where the library doesn't necessarily have all the things that you'd want to know about. You can do a lot of that from the privacy of your own home now. Right. So so in that way, you can do research. Let's say you're worried you have some disease. You can go do research on, you know, on that disease, and you don't even have to have your local doctor know that you're concerned about that. And you can research other issues for other friends. And, yeah, I mean, the, the world is open to us in terms of that. But what about the fact that Google and the search engines keep that data of your search? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a beautiful question. There, you remember the, during the Super Bowl, Google had this wonderful, beautiful ad about uh, basically just somebody's life story through his search queries. It shows you this video of somebody searching about how to move to Paris on uh, restaurants there, and then translating some 40 phrases and, and eventually falling in love and marrying somebody there, all revealed through search queries. This is a really romantic story about how Google helps you get at really important information that can change your life. But then you think about, wait a minute, Google has a complete record of this guy's personal life. And somebody who was armed with that could do... You know, fairly frightening things. He might be able to steal his identity by reconstructing answers to all the security questions, all sorts of dangerous things, which is why deleting search queries after a while and keeping them confidential is a really important privacy issue. And different search engines keep data at, at different time intervals. So I think, I can't remember how long Google keeps it. Is it 18 months? I know that some of the search engines will say, we don't keep it that long, we keep it maybe 30 days or whatever it is. What are your thoughts on that in terms of how long these searches should be kept? I don't see much reason to keep searches for very long in a way that can be traced back to any identifiable account. Uh, I think for most purposes, the search engines after a couple of months really don't need the queries, and they should just keep a list of all the queries that were made but they don't need to tie them back to individual accounts or addresses. Right. What about those people who say, well, we have to find terrorists, and that's the way to find terrorists, and, and law enforcement should be able to get all that? And, and and there's a value to that, but I have yet to hear of a case that was built on really old, stale search queries. Right, right. I guess if you have a reasonable cause to find someone, you know, and you can get their computer, you probably can find it on their computer if possible. So that would be another way to go about getting it, is getting a hold or getting a subpoena for that, 
you know, to sequester that, that computer. Yeah, and I think I mean, the most important thing about finding terrorists is getting the initial lead, because once you have a good suspicion that somebody's planning something, at that point you can start putting them under watch, you can start installing specific monitoring and recording their activities. It's much less important to be able to go back and reconstruct their history years back. And, you know, I, I think about when you have this, you know, that uh, total awareness, remember that that suggested program that could, you know, uh, browse through billions and billions of searches. You know, I mean, why should we be under surveillance unless there's some need to, unless there's some reasonable suspicion? It just it makes no sense to me. We are speaking with James Grimmelman, who is an associate professor at New York Law School, and he's a member of its Institute for Information Law and Privacy Policy, excuse me, and he uh, has an incredible background as being a technologist as well as a lawyer, and he's written numerous articles, and you can see his blog at laboratorium.net, which has fascinating articles. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org in the net. And you're listening to Privacy Piracy. And I'm Mari, Mari Frank, the host. So getting back to you, James, what do you think about uh, real technological protections for privacy? Um, How effective will they really be in the long run? I would say about as effective as real technological protections for copyright, which is to say, we're all doomed. I was just going to say that. Oh, no. So, so what should we do? Do we need to get new laws that uh, update and, and take into consideration what's going on? I mean, are we, we look at privacy laws, and those privacy laws really relate to offline issues much more than online issues. So w- what is really needed then? I don't know. I, in some ways, we're really looking at some insolvable problems. I think one thing we need to start thinking about is the extent to which we've used privacy to protect other values, and we may need to be more aggressive about protecting those directly. So, for example, we were talking about employers who go out and they search lots of information, some of it possibly quite private, on employees, and then they decide, based on what they found, maybe they don't want to hire somebody. So right now we're using privacy law to keep employers from making bad choices like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to be a little more direct about saying that employers are not allowed to use certain criteria in deciding who they hire. Go beyond just race and sex and characteristics like that to say that, in general, there's a presumption that you can't do certain kinds of background checking. I guess unless you have affirmative per- permission to do it. You know, that would be maybe the one you know, uh, opportunity for employers to do that. If you said may, you know, just like now, you know, you're supposed to be able to get someone's prior permission before you get a credit report. Okay. That's, that's the law. And you're supposed to get prior permission before you do a background check, you know, affirmative in writing. Maybe we should, like you said, have a prior permission before you do a search on the internet and that once you do that search, before you use it to make a, an employment decision, you let that person see those things. I think that's very important because in many cases there could be 
not private information, but just inaccurate information floating around around there. Right. Perhaps you have the same name as somebody with criminal past, and the employer doesn't know the difference. Very important for you to be able to know when the decision is being made based on faulty information. Right, and I've had victims of cyber identity theft who who found that there were um, people who put up information on them, for example, on, on dating websites, and even put their picture up, and it really wasn't them. They never put that up there. So, again, you know, who knows what could put, what someone could put up on some website that really wasn't true about you. So, you know, we got to have some kind of transparency. And, and that's kind of what's scary for me. You know, I'm not a programmer and I'm not a technologist, but I hear so many horror stories of how this anonymity on the Internet really leads to the, the fraud that's on the Internet. Yeah, in some ways we have privacy for people who are using it to do active harm and not much privacy for their victims. Exactly. Some ways back, backwards. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about people who enter information, personal information, on websites that ask for it? What about that? What are your thoughts other than just the social networking when they go to a website and they're entering a lot of personal information? What what concern do you have about that? So computer scientist Ed Felton has said two really smart things about privacy on the web. First thing he said is given the choice between security and a dancing pig, users will pick the dancing pig every time. <laughs> Which is people will people will go for things offer a little inter, immediate entertainment and if the website is asking for some information, your name and your address and your email address and so on, before it gives you, you know, the pictures you're looking for before you can buy something, then people will just turn over the information because they all know, already know what they want. Right. And on the other hand, he's also pointed out that people probably don't realize, or probably people actually understand pretty well, that what they enter on any one website may not matter very much. They may already be in the file someplace else, typing in the information a second time probably isn't going to directly hurt their privacy very much. So the people quite reasonably understand that the large companies are already tracking them and that typing it in one more time isn't going to make a difference because they know my name and address anyway. Right. So we're, we're in this society that, that pretty much believes that our information is not really our information. We, we have to opt out of companies sharing our information. We, we don't have as much right uh, to, to really protect it as opt-in, like in Europe. So how does that affect us in terms of our entire society? The fact that, think, we, you know, that we have to opt out all the time. I mean, I think that opt-out is just this gigantic crock. It's been forced on us by the companies that want to do behavioral profiling. And really, if you have to opt out every time, you are never going to find all of the places to opt out from things. Now, I'm on the do not call list and the don't send junk mail list, and I think a bunch of do not send junk email lists, and it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> there are still all sorts of things that get through, and it's impossible to track down and prove you know, which part network they're part of and why they didn't take the instructions. And I think I'm very encouraged that the FTC 
is looking very hard at going to an opt-in system for advertising on the web. Unless you affirmatively consent, they can't track you from website to website. Right. It's so deceptive in what, what, you know, I think that goes all to the issue of transparency. And one of the things is, is that when we are um, giving information, we want to know how that information is going to be used. And when we're tracked, we don't know how that information is being used. Exactly. And it goes back to the importance of context. I mentioned that earlier when talking about kids going to keg parties and being seen by their coaches. But the same thing goes for what you buy online or the sites you visit. Mm -hmm. Of course you want to tell your information to a merchant so they can ship you something at your home address. But you're doing that for the purpose of your relationship with them. It's not about being marketed to by dozens of other places. Right. And you don't want that, uh, you don't want to end up getting, you know, hundreds of emails or, or snail mails from someone who wants to sell you something that will go with whatever you just bought, you know, not without an opt-in. What about privacy among the various generations? I mean, I would imagine at the law school you study some of that, you know, the young people versus someone like in my age, you know, we've got various generational issues about privacy. What, what is the difference? I mean, I'm going to speak in ridiculous caricatures, but you could maybe distinguish three generations here. Uh, you've got people in <clears throat> the AARP generations who grew up with privacy meaning a certain kind of reticence. There are things you talk about in public and things you don't and the things that you don't are part of your private life, and you should keep them to yourself. You have people in the boomer generation uh, who grew up with Watergate, and they associate privacy with a mistrust of government, that <clears throat> information will be used in some government database to spy on you, and you'll wind up on Nixon's enemies list. And then you have people in the millennial generation today for whom privacy is very social. It's about knowing when to step forward and when not to, and respecting other people's uh, sort of norms of what's known about them. And it's very social and relational, and it's tied to who they're dealing with, and it's very contextual. Right. right. And these are all valid ideas of privacy. They're all very important to people. They just don't quite look like each other, which I think leads some older generations to think young kids today don't, don't care about privacy. You know, some people say, well, if you have nothing to hide, you know, you don't even need privacy. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, everyone has something to hide. Absolutely everyone. Eric Schmidt from Google uh, said, if you have nothing to hide, <clears throat> why do you need privacy? And a few years ago, when some reporters used Google to write a story about him and his wife, only publicly available information they could find by searching on him on his own company's site. He got so angry that <laughs> Google tried to blacklist them from doing any stories with Google for the next year. <laughs> so even the person who says, if you have nothing to hide, why do you need privacy, has things he wants to hide. We all have things in our lives that are <clears throat> fine for talking about with our families that we absolutely would not want to talk about with people at work. Right. And it isn't necessarily even about hiding. You know, it's just the fact that, you know, if, if you have a family and you have an address and you have certain things or, or uh, you know, 
you have some kind of level of concern that you don't want the public to come if you're very, very wealthy, that the public knows exactly where you live and where they could burglarize you or whatever else, that um, it isn't necessarily even hiding. It's just the, the opportunity to, like you said, share what you want with those with whom you wish to share it. Right? Yeah, and if you walk into a room and everyone's talking about you, that's kind of that's kind of nervous, uncomfortable. Like you want to have your spheres of your life be separate. Right. We're speaking with James Grimmelman, who is an associate professor at New York Law School, and he's a member of its Institute for Information Law and Policy. He's written numerous articles that I've had the pleasure of reading, and he also has a blog since 2000 at laboratorium that's l-a-b-o-r-a-t-o-r-i-u-m dot net and also his homepage is at james.grimmelman that's g-r-i-m-m-e-l-m-a-n-n dot net you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net I'm Mari Frank your host the host of Privacy Piracy so what, what do you think our notion will be about privacy 20 years from now? We've been talking about the different generations, and, you know, I'm, I'm one of the baby boomers. I remember watching on TV, uh, you know, the Watergate trials and the Watergate hearings and thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, we need to have transparency and we don't need to have all these secret databases or whatever. But, um, but I worry a lot about privacy, of course, those who were victims of some kind of privacy invasion like identity theft, which we have over 10 million new victims a year, they're, they're worried about privacy. So what do you think in the future, in the next 20 years, what's, what's it going to be like? Well, you raised a great issue there, which is the transparency privacy tension is going to be especially difficult with government because our privacy laws and our privacy fears in the U.S., really started becoming big concern several decades ago with governmental databases. And that's a legitimate concern that's put some limits on government's ability to collect information. But at the same time, there are things that we want government to be able to collect that really shouldn't be public, like the census data. You know, it's important to know who's in the United States so that we can apportion representatives and so that public policy is made right. But that's information that shouldn't be fully public. And as we go to an age in which government transparency, like Obama has been pushing for, is a very big feature that helps make government work better, connect better to people, we need to find ways of making sure that the information citizens reveal about themselves in the, as they interact with government doesn't wind up becoming fully public. If you add Obama as a friend on Facebook, you don't want the government to have access to and then publishing to the web all of your information. Right. Now, when we talk about government, you know, privacy with regard to the government, is, is that a bigger threat than privacy with regard to commercial entities? I don't know. I don't want to rank uh, the privacy debates. Uh, I think they're both big things to be concerned about in different ways. Uh, commercial privacy is a lot about really precision marketing. Is the information right or wrong? And why am I getting these ads that make no sense for me? It's also about, am I being denied credit because of inaccurate information in my file? And it's about people who 
know more about me, almost than I know about myself, using that to manipulate me in terms of how they advertise to me. The governmental fears are much more about, is there somebody sitting in an office inside <clears throat> the CIA somewhere who's going to, you know, touch off some personal grudges by sending the police to go knock on my door? And <clears throat> can the government be using this huge network of information and all of its power in ways that we'd be concerned about? So the government is a lot about democracy. With the companies, it's more maybe about my autonomy as an individual and a consumer. You know, it kind of reminds me of Minority Report, and I just read in the L.A. Times just recently there was an article, and I don't know if you read about this, but it kind of freaked me out. There was an article about how researchers have found that in your DNA there's something that can show that you're predisposed to commit crimes, violent crimes. And all I could think about was that movie Minority Report. Did you see that movie? Do you know what I'm talking about with Tom Cruise? It was actually a great movie with regard to privacy issues. I mean, it was so out there in terms of, you know, where they they could read your eye scan or or the, the, you know, you'd go into a store and they'd start talking to you because they could read your RFIDs. (laughs) It was a great movie for that. But, um, you know, I mean, it's a bit scary when you think that if your DNA could be used to decide ahead of time that you should be on a watch list because your DNA shows that perhaps you are predisposed to commit crimes. I mean, on one hand, you think, oh, that's a great idea. You know, we could really prevent crimes. And on the other hand, you think, oh, my gosh, you know, how how true is that? What are your thoughts about that? I think genetic profiling is going to be you know, one of these frightening, very complicated issues, uh, especially for making health decisions. When it comes to profiling based on those things, I think it goes against some basic tenets of living in a free society, that we start off with the presumption that everyone is equal and that everyone is capable of being a productive, law-abiding member of society. And to sort of start off by saying, now, it's nothing you did. You had no choice in the matter. I'm sorry, you're stuck with it. That's, in a way, like going back to you know, old feudalism and aristocracy. Right. A case just, system. Sorry, you're bad luck. Yeah. You got born into the criminal class. Right. Right. Or, or because of your genetics, um, you're predisposed to some type of cancer, and therefore you can't have this job, or you can't buy this house, you can't get this loan, because we can't predict that you're going to be able to live in there 30 years to pay off your debt. So those are the kinds of things that, that people don't think about. But now, are you guys studying the issue of genetic privacy in the Institute for Law and Policy at, at New York Law School? It's not one of our issues. Actually, the folks at uh, Yale Law School's Information Society Project have been doing some interesting things with genetic privacy in, connect, in the Information Society. Hmm. So what kind of issues are you studying at, uh, at, the, at New York Law School with regard to your law and policy? So in addition to the privacy things we've been talking about, where I've been focused mostly on social networks, I've been doing a lot with search engines, actually. Uh, and I've been thinking about what it is that search engines know and how do different places on, online try to use search engines to advance their own agendas. 
we saw this really dramatically in the news recently when <coughs> excuse me when Google said it was going to start standing up to China over altering its search results. Right. It's a fascinating story because Google alters its search results all the time in response to demands from other governments. So if Germany says you can't show hate speech results, like neo-Nazi parties are out, Google is happy to comply with that. And we, and I think they, seem to be more okay with that than with China saying you can't show any results about Tiananmen Square or about Falun Gong. Right, right. It's it's a different kind of First Amendment, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, one is, is considered positive and one is considered <coughs> negative, but, you know, it's interesting because it's um, you're not a- applying the uh, democracy uh, you know, policies across the board in the same way. Not yeah, that I, I not that I believe that we should have hate speech on there. I mean, obviously, right, you know, but uh, interesting. It's really controversial, difficult stuff. And then when you add into that, say, copyright, which people also want to say you can or can't get certain results, plus privacy, because <clears throat> Google has, as we talked about, all the search information on its users, but it can also be used to invade people's privacy by doing searches. You get this really amazing, dense cluster of issues. Everyone wants to control search. It's an incredibly political subject. What about when people search anonymously, you know, whether they use anonymizer? What, what are your thoughts about that? It depends on what they're searching for. Some people have, again, legitimate needs to do that. If your only access to the web is to some place that you think might be monitored, as, for example, people in repressive countries face. This is actually a very important service and an important human right to be able to search anonymously. At the same time, when people who are engaged in stalking do it, then it's being used to invade somebody else's privacy from behind, safely behind your own shield. And so we've got this double-edged sword here in terms of privacy. We want to foster legitimate privacy and protection, but, you know, you've got these safety issues where the the bad guy can be anonymous, and then the good guy isn't an anonymous. It's crazy. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so what, are, what are some of the suggestions that uh, your information uh, and uh, for law and policy are suggesting? What, what kind of, is there software that you're suggesting that, would be best to use? I mean, is there something that would be more easily available by law enforcement if they had, you know, a, uh, a warrant? I think some of the most interesting and possibly fruitful avenues being explored today involve, let's say, pseudonymity rather than anonymity. Ah, okay. So that rather than being totally unidentifiable, you go and you do searches under an assumed name. And most of the time, no one can look behind the name to see who you really are. But with the right kind of evidence of wrongdoing, the records could be unsealed, and you could be identified based on that. Just as the long as you don't steal my name. Yeah, just as long as you don't use a pseudonym Mari Frank 
or James Gramont, <laughs> you know. We have to you have to make up a name that really isn't anybody that you know or that yeah. you, that could be found. And then then, then you're getting thinking, into identity theft, right? I think we're thinking more like random thirty two digit numbers here. Right. Rather than assumed names. Right, right. Now let's get onto the whole fight with um copyright, because I I know that is something that you have uh, written about, and that's something important to me as an author. So tell us about the Google fight, uh, you know, the fight with publishing and copyright and publishers. So this is a gigantic uh, dispute. It's one of the biggest lawsuits in the history of copyright, actually. Right. Um, About five years ago, Google went into libraries, and it started scanning their collections. It started with books that were out of copyright, these old books in the 19th century and before. And it would put the full images of these old books up on their site. And people can go search and find these wonderful old treasures. Then Google decided it was going to add books in copyright. And it wouldn't actually give you the whole book, just like it does on the web, show you a couple of words around the term you were looking for. Authors and publishers decided this was an infringement of their copyright because Google was going to make some money off of the service of searching books, and they sued over it. Then, in a really interesting twist, last year, Google and the publishers and authors announced they had settled the lawsuit, not to allow searching and indexing to continue, but actually to let Google start selling whole copies of books on the website provided it sent two-thirds of the money back to the copyright owners. And this is an intensely controversial settlement because it's not just the individual authors and publishers who sued Google who would be getting a cut, but actually everyone who's ever published a book in the U.S. is part of the class. And so unless you opted out with the court by last month, you have now just authorized Google to sell your book online. Mm-hmm. So, so that means to me, as a as a copyright holder, that how how am I going to get these royalties? How am I going to know? How am I going to do an audit? I mean, how do I know that I'm getting the money that I'm supposed to be getting? It's it's a Rube Goldberg device. They're setting up a whole new institution called the Books Rights Registry which will do the auditing, collect all the money, and distribute it to authors and publishers. But they can also sell it at any price that they want, right? There are, if you want to go ahead and pick your own price, you can claim your book and tell Google, sell it at this price. If you don't, they use an algorithm, you know, somehow connected to the ones they do for search, that will crunch the numbers and try to produce the most profitable price. Uh-huh. And then, so so help me, they they make so much money on, on other things that they can afford to, like on, on when they're trying to sell maybe my book Safeguard Your Identity, when, they're, when they have that, and maybe they want to sell it for a dollar, let's say, okay, and it's, it sells for fifteen ninety five, So they want to sell it for a dollar. But they are going to make up the money on the on that same page, maybe with other things that they've already had other t- advertisers pay, like all of the credit monitoring services or something. Am I right that they can do something like that? Um, you're expressing the fear that Google has this conflict of interest. They want to drive money to their search business rather than to book sales. 
which is one of the arguments being made by one of some of the groups that are actually objecting to the settlement and trying to keep the court from approving it. Various writers' groups have been arguing similar things, saying, we simply can't trust them to do this. The court should reject the settlement. Well, I guess if if there was some protections built in, but, you know, I haven't read carefully the settlement, so I don't know what kinds of protections there really are for the the author. So you have to contact Google and tell them what what you'll allow them to sell your book for uh, no lo- no less than x amount of dollars and exactly. then they'll and then they'll honor that they're supposed to <laughs> it's it's a very very complicated settlement and i've been spending a lot of my professional time following it and we could honestly spend three or four of your programs just talking <laughs> about all of it I guess I should have asked this in the very, very beginning, you know, to know. So, yeah, I think most authors are are not really even aware of what this is going to mean to them in the long run. You know, I think it's very confusing for them. And, you know, I don't know, it may not be in, in your best interest to opt out of it anyway, because at least if your information is out there, it may bring other business to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, you don't, you don't really, publishing. yeah, especially if you're with a major publisher that you don't get that many royalties anyway, it may not, it may not mean anything except that more people get a chance to, to read what you've written and it's important that that, that gets out there. So what do you think is going to happen with this, that there's so, much, there's so many objections to the final settlement? It's very hard to predict. It's going to be in the judge's hands, and we probably won't know for weeks or months mm. how the judge will rule. That will be followed, of course, by inevitable appeals, possibly renegotiations. Yeah. I think this story's going to be with us for quite a while. In, in your opinion, what really would be fair to the publishers and authors? I think the, perhaps the fairest thing would be for Congress to come in and settle this whole deal and set terms for, say, electronic redistribution of books. You know, books that are recent and have been in print relatively recently, say within the last 20 years, uh, would be you know, still under author's control, and publishers and e-book distributors would have to come and negotiate with you individually, the same as they do now, to get your permission. And you could choose which to say yes to and which to say no to. Uh-huh. For older books, the ones that have been out of print for a long time, it might make sense to have a system under which online companies like Google could digitize copies and start making them available again with auditing requirements and various mechanisms to make sure they don't simply dump them online for free. And they basically think up some thoughtful regime that doesn't benefit just one company, but really tries to make older books available again in a broad, fair way. So, James, what do you think? Do you, are there any um, proposals on the Hill for actually implementing some kind of legislation to set this up? Not at the moment. I think it looks like Congress is really waiting on the lawsuit before it decides how to act. Oh, that's interesting. Well, maybe you should propose some legislation. <laughs> 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 that's that's my suggestion, is that you propose some legislation and uh, give me a call and I'll help you with it, you know, help you to see if we can 
get it to the, some positive legislators who would be helpful in getting that passed. I'll get right on it. Yeah. Well, you do research about how the law governing the creation and use of computer software affects individual freedom and the distribution of power in society. So and I know it's a lot to ask, and we've only got about another six minutes. But, you know, can you kind of tell us what your objectives are and kind of what you've learned and where you're going with all this? Basically, I got into this game because I love the Internet. I love almost everything on it. And I think it's done an amazing amount for human freedom, human wealth, and human creativity. It's just an amazing way to connect with other people, to collaborate with them, to learn from the best of what everyone around the world has been doing. And I think it's been transformative for society, and we'll keep on doing so. And what I really want to do with my, with my work is figure out what the Internet got right and identify the big threats to it and find responsible ways to deal with those threats so that the Internet can keep on doing all these great things for us. So what about power in society? How, how do you think the Internet has uh, possibly changed the idea of power in society? I mean, the first order effect there is that it's massively democratized some things so that there are all these professions that are used to be open only to people who are in them. And there are all these amateurs now who can share their thoughts with the world and compete. Journalism is seeing this. Music has seen it in a big way. YouTube shows it in some ways for video production. I think law is actually under a bit of assault like that itself. And to some extent, law, the Internet has removed a lot of the old gatekeepers, which has allowed a lot of talented and motivated people to come around and really do great things on a world stage. Even medicine, right? I mean... Some now you don't necessarily trust what your doctor says. You can go and do all sorts of research on uh, some of the best medical schools in the country and find out what your symptoms are even before you go to the doctor. Yeah, so two great stories here. One of them is the NIH with its PubMed service has done a wonderful job at insisting that government-funded research be available publicly, which means that doctors around the country and patients around the country have access to all of the latest research, which enables, I think, a sort of enormous improvement in how well up they can be on the latest treatments. And another thing I really love is a site, Patients Like Me, which is essentially a social networking site for people with various diseases. And it's not as much about the socializing, and it's more about connecting with people who are dealing with the same challenges you are and sharing with them what worked and what didn't. You can say, when Mutual I tried support. this exercise yeah. regimen, yeah. it actually improved my condition and it helped some of the symptoms uh, go away. So people can try out and learn from each other in this wonderful bottom-up way. Right, and they may be across the world, let alone yes. across the country, to be able to do it. I know for myself, my husband had um, an illness that, thank God, it's gone, but we could not get a good diagnosis, and then I just searched and searched on the Internet, found what it really was, and then went to a different doctor and said, this is what we think it is, and we were right, and then he was able to be cured. And, you know, this was really the Internet that gave me the answer, just because I could do all that research. 
So, I mean, you're right. I mean, it, it is. It does some wonderful things. It's just that dark side that I think is, um, is something that we have to address in a, in a totally different way. So tell us about your blog, and why don't you give your URL for it and your website, but t- tell us a little bit about your blog. We, we have about a minute to do that. Okay, so the URL is laboratorium.net. That's L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-I-U-M.net. And I started it in 2000 just as a random place to put my personal thoughts. And what happened over the next few years is that I found I've been writing about technology policy, even from a very first-person point of view, raising larger issues. And so that it sort of evolved into my professional home on the web. And it's still a mixture of my movie reviews, <clears throat> interesting things that I saw on the train, uh, with my thoughts about whatever you know, major Internet issues I'm thinking about. So it's been a lot of Google Books things lately, because I've been dealing with that a lot. But it's also about social networking, funny stories from the Internet, cat videos I thought were cute. It's, I think, my... This is the kind of thing I love about blogs, which is that it's really whatever eclectic assortment of things I want to put together. So, James, what about the response you get to your blogs? Do you get a lot of comments to you that, that inspire you or freak you out? I get almost uniformly really helpful, interesting comments. Often they disagree with me, but people, when I'm writing about a story, will come in and find links for me to other things that are related or they'll critique my argument in a way that tells me, oh, I need to go back and address that. Opening it up to comments, which I did a few years ago, was a move I've never regretted. I've had great conversations with my audience. Well, we are just about out of time, so we will send people to actually take a look at that wonderful blog. I know I found it you know, fascinating. And so the blog we said was laboratorium.net, and then we also want to send them to your homepage, james.net. Grimmelman, that's G-R-I-M-M-E-L-M-A-N-N, dot net, right? Yep. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll have you back again. Keep in touch. Thank you, Mari. It's been a great pleasure. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. And check out our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Write us your emails about what you want to know about, about privacy in the information age. Give us links, too, to something that's important to you. Download podcasts and listen to archived interviews. See our upcoming guests. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.